Amen. Thank you so very much. Good morning. So good to be with you as we've gathered together to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'd love for you to, this morning, take your Bibles and join with me as we're turning now to the uh, book of Acts. And we're now in chapter 26 of 28 chapters. Began this back in 2019. So if you're just jumping in, what you want to do on your own is to go back and read some of the prior chapters of the book of Acts, get a better sense of how all this begins to fit together, because there's a natural flow to all of this, you see, that's very, very important to understand how it relates to modern day life. For those that are joining us now online, welcome to you as well, and I hope you sense the workings of the Holy Spirit as we're opening up the text of God's Word. This morning we're looking at verse 1 down through verse 18 of this 26th chapter. What I'd love to do is to read verse 1 down through verse 8 to be able to get some traction. And here now we find Luke the physician penning these thoughts for you and for me. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand there on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? We're gonna be looking at those verses and more in the coming moments. First of all, we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Father, it is so good to be able to corporately worship you. We realize that for this congregation, it was roughly now about one year ago that we reopened the doors after X number of weeks of online only. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the way in which you work, the way you guide, the way you direct. And Father, in these moments together, what we want to do is to continue that weekly, if not daily experience, whether it be individually or corporately, of giving praise to you. Praise for who you are. Praise for what you've done. Now, Father, you know where each and every individual in all these services, as well as those online, 
today or in the days to come that are watching, where we're at spiritually. For some, they're on one side of this threshold of salvation. Maybe a religious unbeliever, maybe a secular unbeliever. And they're trying to figure out the meaning of life. Why am I here? How did I get here? What went wrong with this world? How do I fit in? Where is all this going? We want to be able, Father, week by week, to be able to address those questions with biblical answers. So that no matter what background anybody comes from, they are inching toward their cross if they don't yet know Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray they'll cross that threshold. Put faith and trust in Jesus as Savior for their sins. Father, for all who know you, Maybe this passage of Scripture is very familiar to them. Bring a sense of freshness to the soul. Renew the vigor within that person's heart that we're not here to be simply biblical consumers, but rather we are to be true multipliers, leading people to Christ to in turn lead people to Christ knowing that it's not about us, it's all about you. So this is important. We've got to keep our eyes fixed and focused upon who matters most. Warm these hearts. <clears throat> Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at this painting that captures the essence of what Paul is experiencing in chapter 26. Paul has been held in custody for over two years. He's been awaiting for his opportunity to gain a hearing and then be propelled onward towards Rome, where he will be standing before the authorities in the Roman Empire. But before that, he's been given an opportunity by God's grace to be able to share his story rooted in the story of what God has done in the apostle's life and, Lord willing, has taken place in your life as well. Look at his audience. This painting is found in Moscow, Russia, but there are reprints that have appeared in various Christian family homes all throughout the world. I want you to see the reactions now of the various stakeholders as the Apostle Paul is speaking. There's the governor. His name's Festus. Uh, something of a successor to the one we remember as Pontius Pilate involved in the sentencing of Jesus Christ. Now Festus, the Roman governor, doesn't have a hook to hang uh, the gospel truths on when it comes to what Paul is sharing. In particular, this whole matter of the resurrection. So he's invited now the king Agrippa and Agrippa's sister, Bernice, to be able to help him to better understand this whole scenario. So now here's the audience. You've got a religionist, 
You've got a secularist, and there they are positioned before the Apostle Paul, none of whom I'll believe it. And the Apostle Paul has the distinct opportunity before being shipped off to Rome, literally, of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, both to those who are representatives of the Roman government, more of the secularist mindset, as well as King Agrippa, his sister Bernice, of the religious environment. And now we find the best and the highest moment that is of such significance in the, in the experience of the Apostle Paul for high impact. He is now telling his story. But tied to the story. For as Madeline Lengo would remind us, all of life is a story. The novelist Virginia Woolf penned, but in order to make you understand, to give you my life, I must tell you a story. One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, had it right. When Chesterton wrote, with every step of our lives, we enter into the middle of some story which we are certain to misunderstand. What the Apostle Paul is about to do now is to bring understanding to the mindset of all those who misunderstand so that the gospel can penetrate that mindset. And maybe this morning you're trying to understand what Christianity is all about. We're going to allow the Apostle Paul to tell his story, link it to the story, and see how this penetrates our minds and our hearts. I want to draw out with you three points of awareness found in these 18 verses this morning. And the first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 3. When given the opportunity to tell your life story, Be aware, first of all, of the circumstances that God has arranged. What God does is that when you are looking for a way to tell your story, the bumps and the bruises, the highs and the lows, the sum total of life itself, and you want to link your story to the ultimate story of the risen Savior, take a good hard look as you begin to unpack your story circumstances that God has arranged, the people involved. The stories that they have to tell. And how is God at work in the midst of this story? You pick it up in verse 1. So now Agrippa, after two years in custody, it's time for the Apostle Paul for one last opportunity to to express his views before being shipped to Rome. 
Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. This is not a legal hearing now. That's already been sent forward to Rome. What this is is simply an opportunity for Paul to tell his story. So Paul, and this is very typical in Roman culture when you're about to make a presentation, out of due respect to the audience now, he stretched out his hand, made his defense. He's been accused by, by his fellow Jews of things that were not true. And now he's going to have to be able to respond. Watch how the story unfolds. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. It's powerful. Agrippa is part of the line that did not hold to the sanctity of human life. As we've said in previous weeks, his great-grandfather, Herod, was the one that had the children put to death in the opening chapters of the book of, in the Gospels. And furthermore, it was the father who had beheaded James, one of the apostles, in Acts chapter 12. Life's on the line. So much of life's been devalued by the Herodians. And this king is the last of the Herodians. And now, as he's positioned with his sister, they listen carefully, and there is respect being given, isn't there? I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, which means we need to be humble, even among those with whom we disagree. Because when you position yourself at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no place for pride. It is simply a setting for humility. And so now here, with humility and yet courage, the Apostle Paul, in verse 3, states something of a sense of awareness. Because especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so the Apostle Paul has done his homework. He knows who he's talking to, and he's going to know how to respond. Happened over the closing hours in the war between the states, when General Polk of the South, Confederate general, got himself into a predicament. You see, uh, a body of troops had fired on his men, and Polk was absolutely certain they were his fellow Confederates. Rolled round to them, ordered the colonel in charge to cease firing at once. It was the nighttime hours. And when Polk asked the colonel to identify himself, and he did, he indicated that he was a commander of an Indiana regiment, which meant that Polk had misidentified the troops, and now he's face-to-face -face with a federal officer who demanded that Polk also identify himself. South meets north. North meets south. 
evening hours. The fact that Polk was in a dark cape probably kept him from being easily identified. So you know what he did? Polk decided quickly on the bluff, riding right up to the federal colonel, shaking his fist in his face, exclaiming, I'll show you who I am. Cease firing, sir, at once. And then he turned his horse, trotted slowly down the federal line, shouting to the troops to lower their guns. He didn't give the gag away by making a run for it. Kept a slow pace until he, he reached a thicket of trees and he was back in Confederate troop settings. Reasonable safety. And when he arrived behind his own lines, he said to his men, I've assessed these fellows pretty closely. I find there's no mistake in who they are. You may get up and go at them. Now, what the Apostle Paul has done at this point is that he's assessed the situation ahead. He understands the secularist mindset of Ephesus. He understands the religionist mindset of Agrippa as well as Benice. He knows the family history, the lack of an emphasis upon the sanctity of human life, high risk involved. What he does now is that he ascertains what his audience is all about, as should you and as should I. And so when we are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, ask questions, learn about them, understand where they're coming from, their own zip code of life, what they believe, their values. Because that will determine your on-ramp as to where you begin to tell them your story and how it relates to the story of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Now, once you've assessed the circumstances that God's arranged and God is sovereign over the circumstances of your life, the bumps, the bruises, the highs, the lows, the ins and the outs, the I'm glad it happened to me or I wish that had never happened to me scenarios of life, you're ready then for this second point of awareness. Flows out of verses 4 down to verse 8. When given the opportunity to tell your life story, be aware not only of the circumstances that God has arranged, but furthermore, the promise that God has made. Now you're picking it up in verse 4. You're picking up some speed. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation, and in Jerusalem, it's known by all the Jews. They, they know the early stages of my life story. They've known for a long time. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Now, you can almost imagine how the secularist Festus is turning his head towards the religionist Agrippa, and he's saying, what is a Pharisee? And we've got to accept that in our culture, that this is increasingly a biblically illiterate culture we're in. 
So we've got to know our starting points of talking about what matters most and who matters most. And so now God has sovereignly arranged. Just as in a prior era, there was a king head and a governor by the name of Pilate that came together to try Jesus. So now, in a modern era, for Paul's sake, here is another Herod, and this time a governor by the name of Festus. And again, the religionists and the secularists are having to listen carefully as truth is being presented. And this is the way it is in America today, you see. And so now, and so now, in verse 5, they've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Now I want you to see the repetition at hand. Look for a word that gets repeated. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day and as for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O oh, king, you spotted it. Not once, not twice, three times now. Triplicate form. He talks about the hope that he finds in his relationship to his God. You and I, 2021, are positioned among people that feel helpless and, in many cases, hopeless. And what we have to instill in them is the reality of the living hope, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. This happened in a POW camp during World War II. Jürgen Moltmann, professor of theology at the University of Tübingen, one of the most influential Protestant theologians in the world, was lecturing to army chaplains and German pastors at Augsburg decades ago, told his own true story. He was explaining why he was pleased to accept the invitation to address American army chaplains. But you see, he had been conscripted into the German army to fight Americans in World War II. And like a lot of other German soldiers, he soon became a POW, a prisoner of war. Listen to his story. At this point of his life, he really didn't have any spiritual awareness pertaining to God. He recalled that he and his fellow prisoners of war felt that they had been betrayed by Hitler. They were filled with despair and felt hopeless. But then... God broke in. An American army chaplain came into their camp, distributed the scriptures to the prisoners. Moltmann reached into the inside of his coat pocket, pulled out a well-worn Bible, held it up, and said, and here is mine. It even has a greeting from the president at that time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then related to his Augsburg audience these words. Because of this, I became a Christian. I found hope in a hopeless setting. Even in a prison camp where everyone felt shamed and ruined. If 
There are times in your life as you go over your life story in your mind and you feel shamed, ruined. Or if you find yourself in a situation where a blend of helpless and hopeless seem to continuously uh, create a battle within your heart. Embrace the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him. He's the one that provides living hope, you see. Three times now, and I can imagine where, where even in their own personal experiences, Agrippa, Benice, Festus, grapple with their own challenges of hope, and how it relates to their tomorrows. But now to drive home the point, the foundational point of it all, the promise God has made, there in verse 6, where three times the idea of hope surrounds these words, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in what? The promise made by God. The promise. I'll give you a, a little chapter of my life story. Where decades ago, walking the streets of Chicago, grappling with being nine months away from my MD, God, what are you doing and how are you leading? when I receive a letter in the mail from the president of Trinity International University saying that the professors at Wheaton think that you ought to consider becoming a pastor. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll inch into the waters. And so I met with the president and he said, I think you should take a course from one of our professors here named Dr. Walter Kaiser who is now speaking in the sanctuary as I'm speaking in here, you see. You see how God works. And so I, I took a course from Walt uh, called hermeneutics. And Walter had us, as one of our textbooks, purchased the book entitled Prophets and the Promise. I'm by Willis Beecher. Mine is so worn out now from use and overuse. But there is one particular setting, paragraph within Beecher's book that stands out to me. Link it to that wording you see there in verse 6, the promise. For as Beecher puts it, the thing he is speaking of, he calls not prediction but promise. Not promises, but promise. Not a promise, but the promise. The word is singular and definite. The promise made of God to our fathers that grips the attention. It's not predictions, but promise. 
Our family has this tradition you see in the spring of each year of making their predictions regarding who's going to win the World Series. And the winner, the one who tallies, gets the most points, gets their name inscribed on a bat. And you get to have that bat for an entire year until the next year comes around and then you start all over again. What stands out to me is that we're involved in trying to predict who's going to win the World Series, predict who's going to win the Cy Young, predict who's going to be the most valuable player, who's going to have the worst team, and on and on, all these various predictions. But it's predictions, and not the certainty of the promise. Now, when you look at the Older Testament and link it to the New, you have a promise that is given in Psalm 16 of a risen Messiah. You explore the entirety of Isaiah 53, and you're able to embrace, embrace the idea of a, a risen Messiah. So then, now what the Apostle Paul is doing for both the religionist and the secularist at this point is saying this is not an accident in time. This is an appointment with time. God broke in. He sent Jesus into this world to die for our sins and validates this, where three days later, God the Father raises God the Son from the grave. And now I can imagine what Festus is saying, I don't have a hook to hang that hat. So instead of making an exclamation point of it all, wisely and effectively choosing his on-ramp to engage this individual, who in this case is a secularist, poses the question, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If God is God, God is capable, if he is creating something out of nothing, of raising one who is dead to life. And so now, thus far, you're dealing with the circumstances that God has arranged, the promise that God has made, and you're thinking about, and how does this relate to my story? Thirdly, notice the change that God has produced. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I sought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There was pushback. I was religious, but I wasn't saved. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme, and in rage fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This was religious fervency. This was religious sincerity. You can be religiously fervent and not saved. You can be religiously sincere, yet not saved. What is needed is a transformation that is brought into your story. The story of saving grace. 
where you go from before Christ to an encounter with Christ. So then in verse 12, he tells us, and in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven to brighter, brighter than the sun, shone around me, those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice who took the initiative. Saul? No. God. Not in the form of an exclamation point, but in the form of a question. He also spoke Paul's language and used Paul's name. He makes it personal, which God does for you. He wants a personal relationship with you. Big Daddy Weave. My story. If I told you my story, you would hear hope that wouldn't let go. And if I told you my story, you would hear love that never gave up. And if I told you my story, you would hear life, but it wasn't mine. Get this. If I should speak, then let it be of the grace that is greater than all my sin, of when justice was served and when mercy wins, of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. Oh, to tell you my story is to tell of him, you see. Have you woven together your story with God's story? Is there a point of convergence on your life journey? God gets personal. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then to add, and this was typical of that time period, or agricultural culture, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And you say, Garrett, what are the goads? Well, the answer is, is that in that agricultural community, oxen were, were attached to one another so they could plow fields. But when they began to pull away from the direction in which they were to head, the owner of the oxen, overseeing the plowing of the fields, would utilize a gold that he had in his hands to kind of hit them and get them back into position to go in the direction they ought to go. Metaphorically speaking, God uses golds in our lives. Maybe suffering. Maybe the pain of a broken relationship. Maybe an unexpected event that you didn't want to experience. These are the goads of life that God utilizes to establish direction for our lives. Is that what he's doing with you? Even a goad can be part of your story. So you're up now to verse 16. 
doesn't leave them there, and God doesn't leave us there when we come to saving faith. We've got work to do. We've got to multiply followers of Jesus Christ. But rise, stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, you see. This is very purpose-driven. To point you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles whom I am sending you. Now get the, the from and the to, the from and the to. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. You need both. Not one to the exclusion of the other that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Interestingly, he, he waited on talking about sin until this point because they needed a hook to hang that hat. Know you're on ramp. Know where to begin and know where you want to go and where and how you want to end. Justin Cron understands that. I think that some people expect a certain plot line for stories like this. How some crisis precipitated a low point that led to a sudden transforming decision. But the story of my decision to believe that Jesus is Messiah came in stages. In different ways, different times in my life. It began in childhood with my parents' Messy divorce. My mother lost custody, although we had regular visits. But the results of the legal battle left her badly depressed. Badly. But then one day, while she was riding on a city train in Chicago, she was befriended by someone who would have a profound impact on our lives, Josh Wiggins, an African-American believer and as he tells it, the Spirit of God simply directed him to speak with the obviously unhappy woman sitting across from him. It was a divine interruption. You ever had divine interruptions? My mom and Josh became friends. Would meet at DePaul University every week. And every week, Josh would gently unfold the message of the Messiah to her. Sensitive to her Jewish background, he then chose to use Hebrew scriptures to make his case. He chose the right on ramp. Isaiah 53 touched her, as well as the love and the compassion that Josh and his family provided led her to make the decision to believe. A costly choice. Her parents, with whom she was living in Skokie, Illinois, were furious and tossed her out. So she and Josh, Josh's wife, Liz, their three daughters, decided to share a home. Meanwhile, I was living with my father, which was all right, but from then on, for about the next three years, every other weekend when I would visit mom, I would go to worship services and Bible studies, and then on, on a Mother's Day, with much understanding as I, in my eight years of life, could comprehend, accepted the Messiah. 
I benefited from two things. The first was that my father did not try to undermine my decision. The second thing is that my Jewish relatives blamed my mother and not me for what I had done. So I continued to have the benefits of an extended Jewish family while the Christian part of me was being nourished. Only when I became older did I realize that the Jewish part and the Christian part are not separate compartments, but are actually one and the same thing. And he would be able to lead his father to Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. A story. You've got a story. Is God broken in? Is there a convergence between these story and your story? Is he having to use golds this morning to get you moving in the right direction? Return to the one who's the storyteller, who sent Jesus to die for our sins, who raised him from the grave. You've got a story to tell. Tell it well. Let's stand together. Father, some of us don't like certain chapters in our story. Wish we could hit the delete and remove. But those chapters might be some of the golds that you use. Remind each and every one that the last chapter has not yet been written. There's more to be written, more life to be lived, more story to be told. My prayer for each and every one, whether watching online or in one of these services today, is that Jesus Christ, the risen one, is central to each and every one's life story. And if there's anyone who is not yet putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Father, make it today. And this is the chapter. This is the moment. Write the word grace upon their heart. You're forgiven. You belong. Love them, Father. Thank you now for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.